Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, if you would please open your Bibles to James chapter 2. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 1011. Uh, so far this year, we have spent seven Sundays in James chapter 1. And I don't know about you, but those were wonderful Sundays. James has been so timely and so uh, surgical, as I say, just, just really powerful. Um, the end of James chapter 1 uh, encourages us, exhorts us with meekness to receive the word of God and not just to be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. Because the one who not only hears the word, but does the word is acting consistent with their new identity in Jesus. And so with that in mind, let us be hearers of God's word that we may also be doers of God's word. So James chapter 2 uh, we will be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. James 2, verse 1 through 13. This is God's word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing come into, comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no 
mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord God, we live in a culture where people are crying out for equality, crying out to be loved, crying out for mercy. May we, the church, be your love to those who feel marginalized, unimportant, unvaluable. May we show them their value in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The retired Packer player was telling a story of when he was a Packer, uh, he became a Christian. And he started visiting churches. He'd never been to church before. He didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so he started visiting churches in Green Bay. And he came to this one church. um, And on the very first Sunday after the service, the pastor pulls him aside into his office uh, to befriend him. Uh, Not only to befriend him, but also to teach him about tithing. Now, my guess is this isn't customary amongst this pastor. I'm guessing this isn't protocol that he does for everybody who comes through the church. Don't worry if this is your first time here. I'm not going to pull you into the office and talk to you about tithing today. But what he experienced in a real way is favoritism within the church. That because he was rich, because he was famous, people were paying special attention to him that they were not paying to others. Now, partiality and favoritism and bias are kind of like body odor. We can smell it on other people, but we can't so much smell it on ourselves. But really, all of us have grown up in a spirit of favoritism in different ways. You think about it even as a young child. Who are the kids you gravitate towards? You gravitate towards the kids with the coolest toys and the the best house, the one with the swimming pool. When you grow up into elementary school, you know, there's that one kid, at least in my school, that one kid that picks their nose publicly. I mean, everyone does it private, but, but like this kid does it publicly and without any shame. And then what happens? They are ostracized in the in the, in, the, in, the, in the lunchroom, at the playground. Nobody wants to play with this person. I didn't want to play with that person. You get up into junior high and senior high and you start evaluating people to see how they can help your social status. And so you hang out with the cool kids that can make you cooler and then you kind of stay away. You're nice to, but you kind of stay away from the kids that aren't so cool. You get into college. And if you're like me, you don't take a car to college and you, you find out those kids that have cars that could be helpful for you. And so you start befriending them because it is to your advantage. You get out of college as an adult and you start gravitating towards people that have uh, the same life situation. If you're single, you find single people, married people, married people. If you find uh, people with kids, you find people with kids. If you're retired, you find people that are retired. And, you, and pretty soon you're hanging out with only those people that feed you, that nourish you, that are like you. Sadly, this is, this is not only true in society, but it's also true in the church. I think it becomes most apparent in youth group when cliques start to form. 
and the cool and fun people hang out in the middle of the room and they're laughing and delighting and, and there's others, the new people hang out on the outside of the room and no one is going to them to bring them into their group. It, it, it graduates uh, with us as adults and maybe we become more refined in our favoritism, but it's still there. On Sunday mornings in the, in the atrium, we run to those that we know, that we love, that we care for, that we have relationships with to welcome them, to greet them, and to invite them to come and, and, and worship with us. But when someone new comes or someone who maybe seems disheveled, we shy away. And so that favoritism is more refined, but it is still there. And so the question is, uh, how do we fight against favoritism in our heart? And the first thing we have to do, the first thing James does is to acknowledge that favoritism exists. Like I said, we're, we're so good at seeing it in other people's lives, but James is calling us to see it in our own life. Who are the people we favor? Who are the people we shy away from? And so he starts here in verses one through four, acknowledging this problem of favoritism. Verse one, he says, my brothers, show no partiality. Some translations say favoritism. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so what James is, is focusing on here is when we show favoritism to a particular person because of external benefits to us. Okay? And so it's not because we don't, we don't love someone because of their value as image bearers of God or as brothers and sisters in Christ, but we show special treatment to them because of what they can do for us. That's the favoritism that James is speaking against. He continues in verse two. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention, literally gaze upon the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James is giving this illustration, right? That, that, that a rich man comes in and a poor man comes in and the rich man, you say, hey, sit in this special spot to the poor man here. Well, let's make room. You can kind of stand over here. Now, at Jacob's Well Church, we don't have uh, uh, prioritized seating. Maybe this section right over here is our prioritized section. Uh, but we don't, we don't have like special seating here at Jacob's Well Church. And so what would this look like for us? Well, maybe what it would look like is that you see someone come in and either you know them and you love them and, 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 or, or, or they're new and you're like, oh, they have kids, I have kids. And so you show preferential treatment and you say, hey, come, come sit by me. Come sit by us. Come be by us. And the question is, why do we invite some people to sit by us and not other people to sit by us? And if the reason for that is because we are looking for how this person can benefit us, then we have been showing favoritism. And, and, and in our mind, it's not that big of a deal. But as we'll see later, this is a big deal to God. Now, don't get me wrong. It's great to have good friends. It's great to have best friends. But when it comes to the exclusion of those who cannot benefit you, that's when it has crossed the line into favoritism 
into sin. And James says, when we do this, we have made judgment with evil thoughts. Because we have made judgment by designating value to people, not because they are made in the image of God, not because they are a brother and sister in Christ, but we have designated value to them because of what they can give to us. You know, one of the ways the elders uh, guard me here against favoritism, which I appreciate so much, and many churches do this, really every church should do this, but I have no idea who gives what to Jake as well church. I have no idea if you give $5. I have no idea if you give $5 million, okay? I don't know. I, well, I know you don't give $5 million because our budget's not that big. But, but I, I have no idea what people give, and I am so thankful that I don't know because there are times uh, where people will tell me, unsolicited, I never ask people what they give, but for some reason they want to tell me if they give or if they don't give and how much they give, and it, it makes me feel very uncomfortable but what I notice, even in those moments or, or following that, is if I know that someone is giving nothing to the church and someone is giving a lot of money to the church, when my time is limited and I need to go visit with a person, there can be a temptation to be pulled to the one who's helping to pay for my kid's college education, right? This is in my heart. It's, it's not good, because I am designating a value to them, not based on them being an image bearer of God or being a brother and sister in Christ, but by what they are giving financially to the church. And so I am so thankful that I don't know what people give because that would taint my heart. That would taint my actions towards other people. You know, I think almost everyone here, I'm pretty sure it's true, everyone here has been both a victim of favoritism as well as a perpetrator of favoritism. Because favoritism is it's just, it's the air that we breathe in everyday life as humanity. And so we gravitate towards those who benefit us socially, relationally, financially, even in the business world. We gravitate towards those. And so James is calling us to swim against the stream of culture, swim upstream that we might fight favoritism. Now, there are three ways. That was a very long introduction, okay? Uh, but there are three ways that James calls us to fight favoritism, all right? First is by remembering God's heart. Uh, so in New Testament times, uh, rich people were considered to be uh, the people that were favored by God, right? And it kind of went this way. It kind of, th this is how their thought process went. It says, okay, so this guy, Steve, you know, this guy, Steve, he has a lot of money. He has a nice house. He has a nice car. He has a nice family. And so he must be favored by God. And the reason why he must be favored by God is because he is more spiritual, because he is a better Christian or a better Jew than I am. And so he is the really holy one. And so, so the thought process in that time is the rich people are the super spiritual people. But James turns that on its head in this passage. Verse five, he says this. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Have you ever wondered why churches always take mission trips to poor areas? I mean, I, I, maybe occasionally there's some to rich areas. I have not heard of a mission trip to Beverly Hills, right? I, I've never heard of a mission trip to Suamico, Wisconsin. Why is it that churches seem to take mission trips to impoverished areas? 
Well, there might be a lot of reasons, but one reason is because the poor are usually more open to the good news of the gospel. You see, the gospel is good news for needy people. For poor people, they know that they are needy. They know that they need others to help them to get through life. They know they are dependent on God to provide for their daily needs. And so this concept of being needy is not foreign to them. It's very easy for them to accept and to understand. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for the needy. And so mission trips can go and be very effective in impoverished areas because the people have already have an advantage of knowing their neediness before God. This is unique to Christianity. In every other religion, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. In every other religion, the morally rich, the financially rich, the religiously rich would get the riches of salvation. But in Christianity, it is not the rich who get richer and the poor who get poorer. It's the exact opposite. It's the poor who get rich. Those that are poor in spirit. Jesus says it this way. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unlike other religions, Christianity is not for the spiritually, morally, or religiously rich. It is for those who understand their own moral and spiritual poverty. They understand they are completely bankrupt in their own righteousness, and they are needy of God to save them. This neediness, is much easier for people to accept if they're impoverished, if they're in need, in worldly things. James continues in the second half of verse six and turns our attention to the rich. And he says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called James is reminding his readers that in general, it is the rich who do that which is detestable and arrogant before God. They are the ones that are suing one another. They are the ones that are using the Lord's name in vain because they are very confident in their own abilities, in their own righteousness, in their own goodness. They are arrogant people in general. And so he's reminding them of this. Now, here's the thing. James is not saying that rich people cannot be Christians. Uh, there were plenty of Christians in the early church who were wealthy. You can think of Lydia, the seller of purple. You can think of, of Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the, and the book of Acts. Uh, matter of fact, many of the rich people in the early church were the ones that hosted the church service because they had houses large enough to gather together. And so James is not saying that all the rich people are unsaved or unchosen or unloved by God. Nor is James saying that all the poor people are saved. And I know this because if you look closely in this passage in verse 5, James shows you the qualifier for those who have inherited the kingdom of God. He says in verse 5, he says, The heirs of the kingdom are those who love God. The heirs of the kingdom are not the rich. They're not the poor. They are those who love God. And who most loves a generous God? Those who know 
their neediness. Those who are poor in spirit, those who are destitute without the grace of God, whether they are financially rich or financially poor. If you've ever been on a mission trip or had someone that goes on a mission trip, um, let's say you went on a mission trip and you went to serve amongst the poor. That's probably what happened. That's usually what mission trips do. And on that trip, you probably came to the realization or on the way home uh, that, that, that you were so blessed by that mission trip. And, and you or someone on that trip will say something like this. They will say, I went to minister to them, being the poor, but in reality, they ministered to me. And, and we say this, and it's a surprise and a revelation, but this is no surprise to God. This is exactly what God is saying here. Because it is often those who are financially poor in the world that are richest in the faith in Jesus Christ. And so we may share financial riches with them, but they share something far greater with us. They share spiritual riches in Christ. And so if you want to grow closer to Jesus, if you want to grow in your faith, you, you can go on a mission trip to Dallas, Texas, encourage you to do that. You will be blessed by that. But, but welcome the poor amongst you in Green Bay. Those that are relationally poor, financially poor, spiritually poor, economically poor, welcome them among you. And so how do we fight favoritism? It's by remembering and adopting God's heart for the poor. God loves the poor, and it is often the poor who most love a generous God. Second, we fight partiality and favoritism and cliques by fulfilling God's law. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, that's the, the chief law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. It's that simple. If you are loving your neighbor, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So this royal law, this chief law, is a law that is found in Leviticus 19. Jesus communicates it in Matthew 22. If you remember, a lawyer comes and tries to trick Jesus and ask Jesus a hard question. And he asks Jesus, what is the great command... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. And so if you summarize the law of the Old Testament, you can find a summary in the Ten Commandments. And if you want to summarize the Ten Commandments, it's as simple as love God and love your neighbor, right? And so the first four commandments are about loving God. Um, you know, you shall, you shall have no other gods before me. Do not create for yourself idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? So those are, those are about how we can love God. But then the last six are about loving our neighbor, Romans 13 points this out by taking these last six commandments to, to emphasize how we fulfill the, the law of God. In Romans 13, uh, it says, love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, all part of the 10 commandments, he says, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so Jesus rightly says, the way that we can live out the law is by loving one another. Now there's a tendency amongst God people to to designate certain sins as as really catastrophic compared to, to, to favoritism. So we'll say, you know, adultery, that's really bad and murder, that's really bad. But we see here, James puts us in our place. Verse 10, he continues and says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, James is saying, yes, adultery is bad. Yes, murder is bad. But you know what else is bad? Not loving your neighbor, showing favoritism, showing partiality, gathering together in cliques at the exclusion of others. And he says, this is the royal law. This is the king's law, the chief law to love your neighbor. Dr. Dan Doriani illustrates James's point this way. He says, I recently submitted a, a, to a complete physical exam. The medical team was remarkably positive, even enthusiastic. One technician showed me a printout demonstrating that my heart fires with explosive power. Another told me I have beautiful lungs so big that they could hardly fit on the x-ray plate. Unfortunately, he said, the lead physician thought he detected an enlarged spleen. It had to be checked at once for disease of the spleen can be fatal. He said, I could, ha- I could have a fine heart and lungs and still die if the spleen went awry. Further, examination showed that my spleen was fine, but it reminded me of this lesson. To live, we need every physical system. If one fails, the whole person dies. We also need every spiritual system to function. If we disobey God in one area, an entire system fails, leading to spiritual death. And so James is making this point. That favoritism, although subtle, is not a sin to be dealt with lightly. It is a fatal sin that we must seek to put to death. And so how do we fight favoritism, fight partiality, fight cliques within the people of God? It is by remembering and adopting God's heart for those that are poor. But it's also by fulfilling God's law to love our neighbor as ourselves. Finally, It is by cherishing God's mercy. And this might be the most important of all. Verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And so this is the second time James has used this term, the law of liberty, in a very short span. If you look back to verse 1, chapter 1, verse 25, James is encouraging them to put to death sin. And he says in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and preserves, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so when James calls this command to love your neighbor, a law of liberty, he's reminding us of two things. Number one, that it is a law. It is a law of God. Uh, It is a command of God. It is not a suggestion of God that we are to love one another. But the second thing he's reminding us with this phrase, law of liberty, is that this is the path of freedom. That God has set us free in Christ to no longer show favoritism towards others. Think of it this way. You can only truly love your needy neighbor 
if you have been freed from the enslaving need to be affirmed by others. You can only truly love your needy neighbor if you have been freed from the enslaving need for them to provide you with some benefit in return. You can only truly love your needy neighbor if you have been freed from the enslaving need to be recognized all the time. Here's the thing, it's okay to want uh, to have affirmation and, and to have mutual beneficial, mutually beneficial relationships and to want to be recognized for the work that you do. It's okay to want those things, but Christian, we no longer need those things because we have been affirmed by the God of the universe who says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are my beloved. And we have been brought into the most beneficial relationship of all in that when we are in relationship with God, he gives us the greatest gift of all, which is himself. And we have been recognized by God as saints in his kingdom. Why should we sacrificially love our needy neighbor? Not only because God commands it, but by his mercy, we have been set free to do it. Verse 13 continues. He says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. As we'll see next week in verses 14 through 17, we're called to show mercy to the poor, to provide food for them and clothing for them. And James uh, says that the law of liberty, which is given for you to live free, is also, uh, also the means by which you will bring judgment upon yourself if you disobey. I, I had this written out, but I'm running out of time, so let me just summarize. You may remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? The, the rich man is, is uh, living this life of luxury. Lazarus is living outside the gate. He's poor. He's, he's wanting scraps from the table of his master. The dogs come and lick his sores. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds awful. But then when they die, uh, the rich man goes to Hades, and he is, he is, he is, he is dying of thirst, and Lazarus is with Abraham, in Abraham's bosom, it says, and, and the rich man says, can, can you just ask Liz, Lazarus for a little bit of mercy, a little bit of mercy that he could give me a drink of water? And Abraham says, no. <laughs> he says, no, there is a chasm, a great chasm that cannot be crossed. You did not show mercy in your life, and so you shall receive no mercy in the next life. And that's why in verse 13, he says, for judgment, it was without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That is weighty. That is heavy. What Jesus says is terrifying, not only because it reminds us of the torment of Hades, but because all of us know that we are guilty, that we have not shown mercy as we should show mercy. All of us have shown favoritism. All of us are deserving of God's condemnation. Now, if James ended here, we would be helpless and driven to despair. But James gives this wonderful burst of grace at the end of verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me again. He says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment is what we deserve because of our favoritism, because we have often failed to show mercy to those who are in need, financially, relationally, socially, but the good news for the Christian is that the judgment we deserve does not win the day. That mercy triumphs 
over judgment. And so God calls us to repentance, to repent of our sin of favoritism, of using people for our own agendas, instead of loving people because they are made in the image of God, because they're brothers and sisters of Christ, because we have used them for our gain, and to turn to God for mercy, not only in this life, but in the life to come. I don't know if you notice how James started this section on loving the poor, but in verse one, if you look there with me, he says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this, the Lord of glory. James begins not simply by telling us to show no favoritism, but by setting our eyes upon the one who traded his riches, not only to come and live among the poor, but to become the poor. He was financially poor, born of a carpenter and having no place to rest his head. He became relationally poor as he was betrayed by the Father and by everyone who knew, he knew on this earth. He became spiritually poor by taking on our sin and paying the full wrath of Hades on our behalf. And there at the cross, God the Father judged our sin by his law of liberty, and he found Jesus guilty for our sin. And he punished it in full so that we forever can experience the riches of God. Let me end with this. Um, there, th this past year, as I, as I mentioned earlier, th this world is crying out for equality in, in many different ways, Okay. One word that I was introduced this past year was, is the term woke, okay? Maybe you've heard this term woke. Uh, it, it means to, to not be asleep, but the current lingo uh, of woke means a person who is alert to injustice in society. Now, some Christians challenge this term uh, for various reasons. They, they, they think that some people are equating it to being born again and actually pushes people to a, a different uh, gospel uh, for the world. And so some of that we need to analyze critically and, and understand that. But Christians of all people should be alert to the injustice in society. I mean, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is always calling out partiality and favoritism against the poor. And so we should be quick to repent and to be reconciled and to extend the mercy of God to others as God has extended it to us. As our country cries out for favoritism, the church has a great opportunity to show a community where favoritism is acknowledged and repented of, a community where we seek to love one another regardless of social status, a community where the air we breathe is one of mercy and love towards one another because that is what God has shown to us. And so Christian, be alert to favoritism inside the church, but even more so inside your own heart and fight favoritism by remembering God's heart for the poor who are often rich in faith, by fulfilling God's royal law to love your neighbor and by cherishing the mercy of God for you in Christ that you might show that mercy to one another. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a, another heavy passage for us, Lord. Um, and I think at least... 
for me, it's, it's hard to see favoritism in my life, but I know that it's there. And so God, pray that we would, that we would acknowledge the favoritism, that you'd help show us areas that we're showing favoritism, God, and that we will then cling to the cross. Remember the great mercy that our King of glory has shown to us, that we might live that mercy out to those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.